Father, help us. Father, on this day where our culture celebrates the gift of fatherhood that it is to creation, Lord, even to the church, we pray that you would continue the good work that you've done. Thank you for the men that you've placed here. Thank you for the blessing that they are to me, to their homes, to one another, to future generations. Father, I pray that you would establish and strengthen them this morning. And from that number, Father, that you would equip, call, make, shape, and fit elders, deacons for the equipping of this church in future years and in generations to come that the truth and the word of God might continue to go out in such a way that it changes us first and then changes our community and then the world around us. We pray, Father, that you, as our Father, our model, our guide, would be glorified in the words spoken this morning. We pray all in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul writes to Timothy. You'll remember he was pastoring at Ephesus, a young man a very difficult and hostile environment, a very pagan place, a very difficult church fraught with problems. One of the ways that Paul seeks to counter those problems and to encourage his counterpart Timothy, his understudy, is by instruction and appointment of those men who would be a help to him. Not just any men, but men who would be able to accomplish Uh, with Timothy, the work of ministry required in that place. And so we read this. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Nearly two centuries ago, the Scottish minister David Dixon penned these words. The office and work of an elder being spiritual, it is necessary that elders should be spiritual men. It is not necessary that they be men of great gifts or worldly position or wealth or high education but it is indispensably necessary that they be men of God. Though the very work of eldership is in itself very honorable and very interesting, yet it will be dull, formal, and worthless unless there is a real and growing love to Jesus in our hearts. We've looked at what an elder is, defined by what an elder does in the verses previous to this or the days previous to this, I should say. He's a man defined by his work. He's a man defined by his character. And so much of what we have seen in previous weeks takes an external look 
at what an elder does and therefore what an elder is. But I want to begin this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3 by looking at the internal qualities of what makes an elder an elder. It's not what he can do publicly. It's not what persona he can conjure up and project to the church. It is what an elder is inwardly that really qualifies him and makes him who he is. It's not personality. It's not education. It's not leadership ability. An elder is a man who is forged first and foremost by the gospel. He's changed. He's a different sort of man and As a result, there is a sanctifying power in his life that has produced these qualities that Paul writes to Timothy about. These qualities do not come about as a result of mere self-discipline. These qualities come about because the Spirit of God is alive, and He is at work, and He is changing men to be what He requires them to be. John Kitchen writes this in his commentary, when it comes to spiritual leaders, go with character over giftedness every single time. And that's a good rule of thumb. We should look for men who are more spiritual and more spiritually mature over those who are just simply gifted. They're vibrant personality. They're vibrant leaders. They are excellent communicators. They have degrees and pedigrees behind them. No, Paul says, go with a man who is inwardly what he should be before the living God. One who is innately qualified by the work of the Spirit in him. And so Paul begins in 1 Timothy chapter 3 with a familiar formula that is used in other portions of Scripture. But it is a formula that is meant to grab our attention and arrest us before we go any further. It validates the absolute authenticity and the authority of everything that comes after it. You can imagine in your mind Jesus, as he did in the gospel, saying it this way, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say to you. Paul, playing off much of the same thought process here under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, it is a trustworthy statement. We could literally translate it this way, faithful is the word. That says, and then all that follows. Faithful the word. This is a faithful saying, some translations say. This is a trustworthy statement. Everything that I'm about to say to you is trustworthy. It's not the only time Paul uses this to his young protege. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says this about the gospel. It is a trustworthy statement. Same phrasing. It is a trustworthy statement. Faithful is the word, deserving full acceptance. In other words, because of its authority, because of its authenticity, you should receive what's being said here. And what is being said in 1 Timothy 1.15 is this, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. He uses it again in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, when he says this, For bodily discipline is only of little profit. Now that's not an excuse not to take care of your body. <laughs> the implication is it's of little profit, but it is of some profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise for the present life and also of the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement. 
deserving full acceptance. Same, again, phrasing. In 2 Timothy, Paul's second letter to Timothy, he uses it again in chapter 2, verse 11. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. Again, that promise of eternal life, that's the gravity of what's being said here. If that should be believed, so should this. It carries the same weight in Titus, Paul's, again, another letter to another young pastor. Says that... He saved us, meaning Christ, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. He goes on in verses 6 and 7 and elaborates more, but then when he comes to verse 8, he says this, this is a trustworthy statement. Faithful is the word that says this. And so it's with that weight and that significance that Paul delves into the man who would be an elder. Gospel lineage in the wording here. The power of Christ, the authority of Scripture clearly on display. It is a trustworthy statement. It is not a statement that can then be altered. It's not a statement that needs amending. It's not a statement that got it wrong. It's not a statement that is relegated to culture. It is an unswerving, unfading truth that I'm about to give to you, Timothy. And so the elder, what makes him, first of all, is his desire. Notice what Paul says. Faithful is the word. It is a trustworthy statement that if any man aspires to the office of an overseer or desires the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. If a certain one, by the use of the term if, Paul uses a conditional introduction for all of us that assumes it's going to be true, there are going to be men who God will call to do this. There will be those who by the power of God and by the call of God want to do this work. And so, as John Kitchen points out, Paul throws the net far and wide to any man who would desire to do this. And then he takes all that that net would bring in, all the harvest of that net, and he puts them in a funnel. And that funnel works its way down through the rest of chapter 3 to produce at the end men who are qualified and fit to be elders, leaders in the church. Now, I didn't spend much time going over this and perhaps i should have earlier on in the series than this but when we speak of an elder the new testament uses that office not so much again because it's a title but because it's a work and so there are other words that are used in the new testament to refer to the same person just like i am pastor brian i'm also husband brian i am daddy brian i am friend brian I, I am the same person and yet i wear many hats so it is in the work of eldering it, it, he wears many hats here the term paul uses is that of an overseer from which we get our word episcopal or bishopric he is one who oversees that's part of the job of an elder in other places he is a shepherd who shepherds the flock in other places, he is a, a, a literally an elder, a, a mature man, a wise man, 
who leads. And so there can be many ways to describe an elder, but notice that all of them have to do with what he does. An elder is not just a title, it's what he does. He oversees, he shepherds, he leads, he guides, he protects. And Paul says if a man desires to do this work, it's a good work he desires to do. The qualifications that follow, again, will funnel down and reveal and narrow the search for who needs to be in this office to serve the church in this way. But Paul is very clear at the beginning. If a man desires the work, emphasis on work, it's a good thing he desires to do, a good work he desires to do. Now Paul immediately, straight out of the gate, begins to deliver the qualifications for this man. And I notice I say, not this person, but this man. Now, I didn't think I would stand here this morning and think that this controversy would have been kindled in the way it's been over the last week, but it, alas, here we stand. Certain denominations who met for their national convention this week are now having to convene committees to discover what does a pastor actually mean? Huh? Well, if you're having to ask that question, you've got bigger problems. And Paul says, look, here, here's the straight out of the gate. Timothy, he is a masculine form. If any man aspires to do the work, not just any person, but any man. This is a, an office that Paul, from God himself, has received as being uniquely and intrinsically male. Not that women don't have value. Not that women don't have places of service in the church. They absolutely do. But when it comes to an elder, Paul is unequivocal. Therefore, I can have to be unequivocal. It is an office that's first qualification is that does a man desire this work? Let's not be confused. Let's not be caving to the cultural moment. The word of God hasn't changed. We just sang it. They're ancient words. Ever true. This is true. And the faithful word and the trustworthy statement cannot be altered. It is this, that a man would desire the office of one who oversees, who shepherds, who teaches, who leads, who protects. And this must be the first criteria. It's the man who does it, but then closely on the heels of that, he has a desire to work. Not to sit in meetings, not to pontificate from a board, but to work, to lead. Again, some of you know this by personal experience. You have either managed or you have been in uh, companies that manage and and promotions are given or hires are made with the hopes that they'll live up to a certain expectation without having yet demonstrated the qualities of being able to do that. Does that ever end well? No. And so there has to be an examination of life, of ability, of character to lead. But, but there are men who possess that and they possess a desire to do the work and they are doing the work. The word desire carries with it the idea of to, to see something, to act for oneself, to desire earnestly, to reach out and apprehend something. And, and again, that can be negative. That word is used negatively in 
1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul talks about the, the, the illegitimate lust and love of money being the root of all evil, who some having longed for, that's the same word, desire to reach out and by hook or by crook to grasp it. So it has, can be used negatively, but it can also be used positively in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, speaking of the hall of faith. But they desire, long for, reach out to apprehend a better country whose builder and maker is God, a heavenly one. And so it can be a good thing, and here it is a good thing. If a man desires to work, he wants to lay hold of work. Again, not title, not privilege, not status, not standing, but he wants to serve the king and the king's people. That's a good thing. If he's willing to devote his life sacrificially to this, it, Paul says, is a good work he desires to do. So, man, are we ready to work? Are we ready to work? Are we ready to roll up our sleeves in the day in and the day out? In the mundane of service and care for the flock of Jesus Christ. That's what is good. To lay down our lives for the people of God. To serve them in a sacrificial way. It's a good work. It is, but it is the man's passion. It is his qualification that he passionately desires to do this he wants to do this as martin lloyd jones says in preaching and preachers when speaking to a group of pastors he says if you can do anything else and be happy doing it go do that but if you can't if this call has so seized you that you must give your life to serve the church of jesus christ then do it and be assured of this. It is a good work that you've been called to do. Some want to work for the wrong reason. Some desire the office for the wrong reasons. But Paul mentions it as being good, good work. The elevation of the office of overseer, elder, pastor, shepherd, elder, however you want to say that should deter anyone not wanting it for the right reasons. Because it is a work that needs to be done. It's a lifetime of labor. The sheep need to be protected from abusive and false teachers. They need to be sheltered from that which would harm them. And that's what sheep want, isn't it? It's amazing to me. Again, you don't think you'd have to say these things, but again, here we are. Again, in same said convention, the gross mentions of abuse and neglect and pastoral negligence and on and on it goes. You know what you hear from the people? Not the ones who pontificate the decisions, not the ones on the platform, but you know what you hear from the people? Protect us, feed us, lead us, shepherd us, serve us in that way. Men, that's what we're called to. And again, while this applies specifically to the church of Jesus Christ, that applies to every man with a wife and children. Feed us, lead us, 
protect us, serve us, have a passion for the work of a man. This is the work of all men. Not just pastors. Not just elders. I know it's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, by the way. But this is what we're all called to. Because this is how Jesus lived. He came to do a work. And it was a good work. And he set the supreme example. And so Paul encourages Timothy, listen, Timothy, it's not for greed. It's not for control. It's not for prestige. In fact, you will be the lowest of the low. You'll be at the bottom of the the galley ship as a slave to Jesus Christ to serve. Do you want that? Then it's a good work that we're called to do. And so Paul gives these initial opening salvos here that a man must desire to do this work. And Peter says it well in 1 Peter chapter 5, doesn't he? He says, hey, listen, they are to shepherd the flock of God willingly, not under coercion. Not because somebody pushed them into it. Not because it was a family tradition to do it. Not because, you know, it looked fun and people said, you know, wow. I had a mother one time come up to me and say, you know, I think whose son, at least at the time when I knew him, was not living a life that would, one would say was consistent with being a Christian, let alone a pastor. And she said, you know, I think God called my son to preach. I said, really, how's that? Well, he likes to talk. Well... Okay, that doesn't exactly usher you in because you want to talk and you like to talk. But if you're going to profess that call and if you're going to pursue that call and if you say you're called and you have that desire, let's then qualify that even further, Paul says. Not to be hurtful. Understand that Paul is only ultimately wanting to be helpful because the wrong people in the right position is still the wrong fit. You don't just throw people in a position because you need them there. A very wise elder at a different church one time, I I sat down with him and I I said to him, I said, I, I was a young pastor at the time and desiring to have others in church around me to help lead with me. And I sat down with him, and, and again, very wise, very kind, older man. And, and I was taking some pressure at the time. This is years ago, over a decade ago, from a couple of individuals who were trying to kind of finagle things in a certain direction to their advantage. And he said, listen, Brian, he said, it's better to have nobody than the wrong body. He said, Titus... Had to stand alone for a number of years before God gave him elders. He said, obviously you want to work to that, you want to pray to that, but, but you don't just throw anyone who says, hey, I have a desire to do it. Okay, fine, you've got a desire to do it, but what do the rest of these qualifications say about you? The circle I grew up in often asked a question of men at their ordination exam and the response that we were taught to give was actually quite foolish. The question would inevitably come up in this particular way of 
doing things in these particular group of churches. If this council of ordination finds you unqualified to preach and to pastor, what will your response be? And they would say to us, boy, you say I'm going to preach anyway. It was somehow viewed that your passion and desire trumped whatever holes were found in your life or your doctrine. Well, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. That's a foolish response. That's certainly not a response Paul would be proud of. Paul says, you must be these things. They must be true of your life. One commentator says it speaks of the logical necessity of every one of these characteristics because what we are called to do, the work, remember that's what we're in it for is the work, not the title. And the work is going to need every single one of these spirit-produced qualities in us or you will fall flat on your face. And the problem with eldering is this, you don't fall alone. You're leading others and they too will be harmed. So it's incredibly important to take this seriously. There's an overarching principle here, and I mentioned it last week, and so I don't want to belabor the point because we are strapped for time given the amount of information we need to cover. But he says this in verse 2, an overseer, an elder, a shepherd, a pastor must then be above reproach. And that above reproach is the overarching Word that then qualifies it is the adjective that qualifies all the nouns that follow of what he is to be. It doesn't mean that he's perfect, but as I mentioned last week, we literally take our understanding of the word Teflon in English from it. What is Teflon? It's something that uh, prevents things from sticking, right? Teflon cookware. You have Teflon tape that you put on threads before you screw something together so that if you need to get it off, you can get it off. And it also seals up holes and it does a variety of things. A man's character should be like Teflon. Listen, we will be accused. Paul was accused. But the, the, the reality is his life was such, his character was such that it didn't stick. Throw all the darts you want falsely accuse away but my life tells a story that your accusation doesn't fit therefore it's baseless right paul says you need to have a life that makes such spurious insults and accusations not stick it's only used three times in the new testament this word of which we get non-sticking or blameless it's used of widows in first timothy 5 7 prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach and helping widows in the church they are to live wholesome lives and lives above reproach to timothy himself about his own personal character keep the commandment without stain or reproach without being able to have something stick about the accusations in your life And so Paul says, listen, Timothy, and he said it to him, or he'll say it to him in just a moment in chapter 4, verse 16 as well, to watch your life and doctrine. Interesting that life comes before doctrine. 
you can go to seminary and you can fill your head with facts and you can know and read everything there is to know and read. But if you don't have a life that is consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the change he makes, you are not qualified. Therefore, Timothy, watch your life first and then your doctrine. Both matter. But doctrine, you don't even get there if your life is so mired in controversy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, he literally beats his own body to make it a slave, lest possibly after I've preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. I, I would lose that Teflon aspect of my life, and the accusations would stick. John Kitchen says it this way, he's a man without skeletons in the closet. He's got nothing to hide. This must be true of the elder. It must be true of the elder. And you know, brothers and sisters, it ought to be true of every Christian. That we live our life in such a way, changed by Jesus Christ, that we have nothing to hide. We keep short accounts of sin with God and with one another and we confess our sin and we seek to be strengthened in our walk with Christ. Galatians 6, 1 through 3, bearing one another's burdens, holding one another accountable, loving one another, praying for one another so that at Jesus' return all of us are found without blame. First because of His salvation and secondly because of the Spirit's work of sanctification in us. And so how does Paul then dive straight in? Again, he's not wasting time. He must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. He must then be blameless in the area of moral impeccability. When Paul writes to instruct young Timothy, he is writing to a church in chaos. Absolute chaos. And this church that is in chaos is living in a culture of chaos, of moral bankruptcy, much like our own. And do you know what you need in the church of Jesus Christ in the midst of a chaotic church situation, in the midst of a morally broken and chaotic world? You don't need another immoral man. You need a moral man. A man who is different. And you know, the world won't like that. I, I marvel at how Mike Pence was mocked incessantly because he refused to be alone with another woman who wasn't his wife. At the same time, the Me Too movement is screaming and finding a Me Too moment under every rock. Shouldn't we be saying, praise God for a man of integrity? Who says, you know, I'm not, I'm not even going to give you the chance to accuse me of anything. But what do the world do? They mock that. They hate that. But what the church needs is not what the world desires. What the church needs is something different than what the world desires. We need men of moral impeccability. Immorality in Timothy's town was the norm. It was expected. It was, hey, you're a little odd and you're not really one of us unless you go and do these things. A moral man who was living in fidelity either in his singleness or to his bride was unheard of in Timothy's day. And Paul says, Timothy, 
the first thing he's got to be is blameless in this area of moral impeccability. They can't find holes in his life to pick at when it comes to this area of morality. And I know you're going, but it says the husband of one wife. It sounds like we're not talking about the same thing here, but we are. Hang on. It was so bad in the ancient world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you remember that great chapter? Well, it's great for us, not so great for the Corinthians. (laughs) There was such immorality in the church going on, such grotesque behavior. Paul has to reprimand them and say, put those who are committing this out of the church if they won't repent because it's so bad. The Gentiles, the pagans up there on the temple doing all this pagan stuff, they can't even believe what you do. They don't even do this. We need morally impeccable men, and I would say women too. But for men to lead especially, there has to be this trustworthy factor of righteousness being worked in you by the gospel, by the Spirit, so that you you exude this, you demonstrate this by life. The orderliness of public worship was Paul's concern here. The orderliness of the church, the effectiveness of its leaders is Paul's concern here. And overseeing and shepherding the church is no small matter. And, unless we think, oh, you just do it for the name. You do it for... May I remind you what elders have to do? We will stand before the living and holy God and we will give account. First for our life. And then for the lives of all whom we were charged with overseeing. And God, James says, God will hold us to a stricter judgment for that. The elder must not only carry the burden for himself, his own family, but for the church. That's a high thing and you cannot have an immoral man a man who has questionable morality doing it in a way that would be pleasing to god in a way that would keep the church orderly and the worship of the church as primary without the distraction of well did you hear what he did have you thought about this well i don't know about we've got enough problems to deal with we've got our own sin we've got the sin in the church we've got we don't need it so Paul says, let's circumvent this by just saying he needs to be a man of moral integrity. And so, it's morally faithful. He's the husband of one wife. Now, there's both a rightness and a lack of clarity to what Paul says here. Hear me. There's both a rightness to what Paul is saying, and there is also a lack of clarity as it comes across in the English translations. And I would dare to say every modern English translation laying on your lap or on your screen in front of you, none of them really get to the point and the heart of what Paul is saying. Paul says it is the husband of one wife. That's true, but that's only part of the story. Let me just list for you this morning how some of these understandings have been or or surround this verse number number one people say the husband of one wife that's a prohibition against polygamy okay some would say it mandates marriage you can't be a pastor unless you're married in that case paul's got a problem 
He's single. Some would say, well, it forbids remarriage after an unqualified divorce, a divorce that is unbiblical. Others would say it forbids remarriage if your wife dies. Some say it's a prohibition of divorce. And others would say it simply demands that the elder be a man morally, sexually faithful to his wife. Pure before he is married if he's single and then after it that he is pure afterwards. Now, we can really easily look at this and say, number one, two, and four are kind of out at face value. Because polygamy really wasn't a problem in Greek, Greco-Roman culture. You didn't need to take a bunch of wives. You just lived however you wanted. It was a problem in the Old Testament. Because if you were going to be involved intimately with someone, you needed to take him as a wife. But pagan culture, who needs him? Who who needs the formalities of it? Just live how you want. Be immoral with whoever and however many. So polygamy is not really an issue in Paul's day. It certainly doesn't mandate marriage because then Paul couldn't give the command. And it certainly isn't a forbidding of remarriage after your wife dies. Paul makes it clear as do other places that if a spouse dies, you're perfectly free to remarry. It doesn't mean that once one wife dies, that's it. And so what is Paul saying here? And I want to be helpful in this, okay? I want to be helpful in your understanding of this. What the, the word literally translated, the, the, the phrase literally translated in the Greek language literally says this. He must be blameless in being a one woman man. A one woman man. Now, the question naturally immediately goes to divorce. Can an elder be divorced that's where we naturally want to go because of our english translation and i'm going to say to you that it does cover that question but it is so much bigger than that question he must be a one woman man that is to say this you can have a married man who never physically acts on anything But his lifestyle, his viewing habits, his flirtatious nature, all of those things communicate that he is not a one-woman man. And you know what Paul would say? He's not qualified. He's not morally upright. He's not giving the impression that he is a devoted husband and he is wholly his wife's. He is not a faithful husband man he doesn't faithfully make his wife trust him he gives her every reason not to trust him he gives her every reason to wonder but he's never done anything he's never divorced her yeah but he's given people the impression that there might be something to his kindness he may be using his position to abuse them And so, faithfully, specifically, this text is about something much larger than divorce. 
Now, is divorce underneath that heading? It most certainly is. Particularly when we consider that the Bible regulates divorce. Now, it's, it's something that heartbreakingly is so much part of not only our culture, but Paul's culture. Paul would struggle with what we might say is serial monogamy. Among the Greco-Roman world, you didn't like something? Just divorce her and move on. 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 It was that way with the Pharisees, by the way, as well. You know, you could, if you're literally in one of the ancient Pharisaical codes that was added to the law, if your wife burned dinner, that was grounds for divorce. How ridiculous. That is infidelity, friends. That is not God's ideal. But Paul says, hey, look, some of you believing Christians are married to unbelieving spouses. And if your unbelieving spouse does not want to remain married any longer and they leave you, you are free. You, you're not only guiltless in, the, in the, the divorce, but you are guiltless in remarrying. You're free. Adultery is, is another Exception, the one I believe personally is, is more closely regulated, but it's still a viable reason for divorce in Scripture. It's not God's ideal. God hates divorce. We know that. And some of you ha- have gone through the pain and the heartbreak, and, and my heart bleeds and breaks for you because you know how bad that hurts. And you know the pain of that. And God knows the pain of it, and he hates it. I think for the Christian, if you have especially two Christians who are married, the the pattern would be to say, yes, there may be adultery. And yes, it opens the door for divorce, but not without first pursuing reconciliation and forgiveness. No, if it continues to happen, then we've got a different problem. Right? Right? But, but we, we would call like Hosea and Gomer to, to forgive and try to reconcile. But, but again, it is, it is a biblical option for being honest with the text. And in both of those cases, wherever God has allowed someone to divorce without fault, the, the assumption is that remarriage is also a valid option. In both of those cases. The death of a spouse, the leaving of an unbelieving spouse or adultery that cannot be reconciled. And so as we come to this text this morning, it doesn't change the Scripture's teaching as a whole on divorce, nor does it really say anything about divorce and the elder particularly. It literally reads a one-woman man. And so my task this morning is to not stop short of what Scripture says, but not to go beyond what Scripture says either. I've got to stick the landing, if you will, and be faithful to what it says. And so the question is, what does it mean? Well, I want to give you a thought. As the literally translated, a one-woman man, it is a matter of expediency, not legality. Technically, a biblically, and I say technically because it is not Worded and, it's, and and I know we, we may be from a tradition or we may have a you know our interpretation of this is a hammer it. 
You know, say no, be definitive, you know, crush it. But I can't because the text doesn't. Text is a one woman man. Now, do, are there principles that are going to apply? Yes. But it is a matter of expediency principle, 1 Corinthians 6, 12, versus a legality. Technically, according to these words, a biblically divorced and remarried man could be an elder or a deacon because it doesn't, it is not written in a negative prohibition way. It is just simply saying a one woman man. However, while that may be the legality of it, we need to ask ourselves the question, Paul, is this the most expedient thing? Is this the most profitable thing for him and the church since the heading of this is to be what? Blameless. Or will he and the church spend far too much energy explaining and defending the legality of everything that's transpired in his life? John Kitchen says it this way, commenting on Paul's uh, same teaching to Titus. However, in this case, Titus would be looking for someone who does not have the encumbrance of needing to work through applying the truths of Scripture to a twisted family relationship that could develop contention between multiple wives and their children. If you've got to constantly be going back and defending this and defending this and defending this and defending this and spending all of your time doing that for yourself, for your family, and for your church, then maybe not a good idea not saying you can't serve not saying there's not a place for you but an elder has to have his life undistracted if i can say it that way by something such as divorce because as we all know there's rarely if ever an easy divorce they're all painful and they hurt and they bring certain baggage especially as you are in public leadership such as being an elder Again, 1 Corinthians 6.12, we read it in Sunday school. All things are lawful for me, Paul says, but all things are not profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. I've got to take in this expediency, what is best question into mind. Again, it brings up too many questions about skeletons and closets. I think for Paul to be say, hey, you know, it's no big deal. We'll just go on. No, no, everything about you has to point to the fact you are a one-woman man. And it can't be called into question. And there's not room and there's not wiggle room to say, you know, I really don't know that he is. Or even in your own conscience say, I'm not really sure that I am. And I'm, I'm scared that this might happen or that might happen. And then if that gets out, then that's what we're trying to avoid here. Is the distraction that it could be again this is not to exclude for the purpose of snobbery it's to protect the man it's to protect his family it's to protect the church from undue criticism and scathing it's a loving vetting process loving the man and loving the church to do what is best by both and so that brings us back to the true meaning requirement of morally upright faithful men Now understand, that is a tall order today. To find men like this. To be men like this. 
to keep our minds pure, to keep our hearts pure. So let me ask you this, church, as we close. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for the men will ordain? Will you pray for other men in this room who God may be calling? Would you pray that God would qualify them by keeping them morally pure? By causing them to be this ideal of a one-woman man, even single men, that they would be pure? That God would keep our lives intact morally? Let me just say, that's not a given in our day. Not a given at all. How we need God's help. Young men, how you need God's help. To fight against lust and the desires of your flesh that will arise. We need to fight this. And we can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. I gave you the statistic. Many of you weren't here, so let me give it again. Just to illustrate the battle we are up against. Michigan State University just concluded a survey that found there are over 4 million pornographic websites on the internet today. 4 million. And of those 4 million, they total a number that is astounding in terms of daily hits. 80 million hits every single day day on 4 million pornographic websites. Let me put that in context for you. Amazon processes 1.2 million orders per day. The world's largest internet retailer makes 1.2 million transactions per day. Pornographic sites have 80 million transactions because that junk ain't free. It accounts for 45% of all internet commerce. We have a real battle, men. Women, you too. But we all have a battle for our hearts and our minds. And Paul says, you, we need men who are morally faithful men. No, listen. God forgives and God can restore. And I know that's a bigger struggle than than we even want to think it is. Even within the church of Jesus Christ, I have good news for you. Jesus forgives. And Jesus will strengthen you in your fight against that. But you must fight. We must fight with the Spirit's help to be one women men. For the glory of the King. For the good of His church. For the good of our wives and our children. It's so much bigger than divorce, isn't it? Can it lead to that? Yes, it can. But it starts way before that. And if we, if we cut it off here, we don't have to worry about getting here. Let's stop it where it is. Let, let's stop it in its tracks and commit ourselves with the Lord's help to moral purity in our minds And in a way that would never lead us to have to ask the divorce question. Again, that's a a cause for expediency, not a cause for legality, not in this passage. 
But I think it's, you know, it's kind of like Jesus saying, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. And everybody's like, yeah, I haven't done that. Bad news. Have you hated anybody? Yeah, you're guilty. Hey, don't commit adultery. Hadn't done that. Good news. But have you lusted? You're guilty. See, Paul's admonition, his bar is set high. It's not just one little thing that we can find a technicality and get off on, and yet our heart is far from God. Though the technicality matters. I'm not saying it doesn't. But you've got to stop what led to that. Being a one woman man, a morally upright man, a man blameless in that way. Does this, inclu- does this exclude some either by, by outright legality or by expediency? Yeah, it does. Is that difficult to swallow? Yeah, I'm afraid it is for some. But is this what God has said? Yes, I believe it is. So that's where I have to stand. Does it protect the church? Yes, it does. Can we compromise on it? No, we can't. And that's where the matter stands. And so I ask you, brothers and sisters, let us pray for qualified men to lead this body. Let us pray for the men currently leading this body and who will be leading this body shortly and find them on the wings of our prayers upheld before the throne of grace, continuing in their state of qualification. Paul says, because it's possible that you were once qualified, but you do something to disqualify yourself. And that's why I discipline my body, Paul says. I beat it so that after preaching, I myself am not disqualified. May the Lord help us. Sin lies at every turn. But wherever sin's turn is, so is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So is the power of the Spirit to say no and to pursue purity and righteousness and blamelessness so that we are above reproach in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.